All right, good morning, everyone. It is Alan, not Carrie or Chris here uh, before you. <laughs> and uh, we're going to be in John's Gospel, chapter 5, uh, continuing on our series in, in John's Gospel, looking at the Lord uh, in the midst of his people. And uh, so we'll, let's read uh, John chapter 5. If you have your Bibles there, um, it's not going to be on, up on the screen. So we'll read John 5, verse 1, down to verse 15. And it says, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, or Bethsaida, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he'd been in that condition a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? And the sick man answered him, sir, I have no man to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, rise. Take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said to him who was cured, It's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to carry your bed. And he answered them, He who made me well said to me, Take up your bed and walk. Then they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. We're going to stop there, middle of the story, um, and pick up that up next time. So yeah, we're looking at John's Gospel. and uh, uh, John chapter 5, verse 1 to verse 15. Do you want to be healed? And, and uh, asking the right questions. Now, sometimes we get the wrong answers from people because we ask the wrong questions. Uh, if you ask someone, have you stopped murdering people yet? Right? Then there's only two ways that they can answer, both suggesting that they're murderers, right? If I ask you, John, have you stopped murdering people yet? And John says, yes, I've stopped. Well, that suggests he's done it for a while, now he stopped doing it. Or, John, have you stopped murdering people yet? And he says, no. Uh, well, then that means he's continuing to murder people. And so the question itself has this sort of, it's a bad question, which leads to bad answers. And uh, what we're going to see, one of the great things to look for in the four Gospels, actually, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is how uh, the religious leaders ask questions. What type of questions do people ask Jesus? Not just the religious leaders, but anyone, really. What type of questions do they ask him? Because the questions that they ask show their hearts. The type of things that they're asking show what they believe about Jesus, about the Messiah, about themselves, about how to please God in some way. And it really, it really gives us some insight into them as they begin to ask these certain questions. Now here we are, we're in this third miracle that Jesus performs. Jesus has performed 
two miracles so far, uh, so far the ones that have been recorded in John's Gospel. But if you remember, both are quiet miracles. You remember? In John chapter 2, he, it's the miracle at Canaan where he turns water into wine, and it's a quiet miracle. He asks people to leave the room. Only a few people see it. No one at the wedding notices, n- knows that it was a miracle. People are like, oh, you've brought the best wine at the end. They don't know it was Jesus who did that, right? So it's a quiet miracle. The second miracle recorded, the one we looked at last time in John 4, is also a quiet miracle, right? Because a man has walked 20 miles, Not everyone knows this man. Not everyone sees this event. A man has walked 20 miles. Jesus says, go home, your son's healed. Like Jesus didn't do anything spectacular physically in that moment, right? He didn't like uh, do do a thing. He didn't do something in front of a, a massive crowd of people. He just said, go home, your son's healed. And so he went home and his son, his son was healed. So quiet miracles, but it's about to change. From John 5 onwards, it's about to become very public, the miracles of Jesus, okay? And uh, we're going to see uh, why in this chapter it begins to change. Now, another, another thing to remember, and something we, we clamped down on last time, is about the signs, right? In John chapter 2, verse 18, after he flips the temple, they ask him, what sign do you have for, for doing this? What sign do you have And John chapter 2 verse 23 says he was doing signs among the common people, right? The common folk were witnessing the signs and they were believing Jesus. In John chapter 4, we looked at last time, he challenges the Jews, the Jewish leaders really. He says, all you want is signs. You won't believe until you see the signs. So here, John 5 is this pivotal moment because he's been doing quiet miracles. Now... He's going to do a public miracle, and it's going to be a big sign, right? They've been asking for signs, demanding signs, and Jesus is about to give them a sign. Like, this is the first sign for, the, for everyone to see, you know, who he is. These, these quiet ones were happening. I know in Jerusalem, Nicodemus came, and he heard some things that were going on, but this is going to be a public one. So how will they respond? That's the question. How will these people respond to this miracle that Jesus is going to do? This, this more public one than he's done uh, so far. So some information, not everyone likes maps, but some of you do and find it helpful. So for you, those who don't, just bear with. But this is probably where this miracle takes place, okay? Up at the Pool of Bethesda or Bethsaida, at the Sheep Gate, right near the temple uh, in the north side of the city. And uh, archaeological digs have found it for, for us, so that's what they believe is this pole. It says in this passage that there was walking porches or colonnades, and that would have been in there. They would walk through, they would have shelter in the heat uh, and in the weather. That's probably, again, an artistic rendition of what it looked like in, in those days. Um, a place where all the sick would come and gather and have some refreshment and shelter uh, from, from the weather. And uh, again, that's just another artistic rendition of what it would look like inside and at running down to try and get into the the troubled water. So yeah, do you want to be healed? This is what we're looking at uh, this morning. There's going to be a few conversations that take place. Jesus is going to speak to the the sick person. Then the Jews are going to speak speak to the sick person. Jesus is going to speak to him again. And then it'll be a conversation between Jesus and the Jews, which show us a little bit more um, about what's going on. So the first one is Jesus and the invalid in verse 1 to verse 9a. 
Now remember, Jesus has traveled from Galilee to Jerusalem uh, for another feast. It says that in verse 1. Lots of people disagree about what feast this is. Is it the Feast of Passover? Uh, So it's a year later. Uh, Is it a Feast of Tabernacles? Is it the Feast of Pentecost? We don't know. There's lots of arguments. We won't get into it uh, this morning. But we do know that Jesus has come for this feast. Um, But he's come for another reason as well. Not just for this feast. He's come because he has an appointment with this man. The man doesn't know about it, but Jesus knows all about it, and he's on his way, right? So he's coming for two reasons. He has a feast to attend and a miracle, uh, a person to heal. Now it says in verse 3, there are multitudes of sick people here. Verse 3, and these lay a great multitude of the sick people. But Jesus had an appointment with one man. We don't know why Jesus singled him out. Lots of conjecture. Why this one man? The Bible doesn't tell us, so we don't guess, right? That this, it just says there's this one man and, and this multitude of people. We don't know why he healed him and not the rest. It doesn't tell us, but it just says there was this multitude of people and Jesus saw this one man. We don't know also how long this man has been here for. We know that he's been sick for almost four decades. We know that he hasn't been able to walk for uh, 38 years. Verse 5, a certain man was there who had an infirmity for 38 years. 40 years almost of not being able to function. That's a long time, right? Now, it's not a long time to wait because he doesn't know that there's something to wait for. It's just a long time to be sick. It's a long time to be infirm. But he's also been here for a long time as well, it says in, in verse 6. He had been there for a long time. And I love this. So if we go down to verse 6 here, and it says this. It says, when Jesus saw him lying there. There's a multitude of people, right? But Jesus saw him lying there. And I love this next bit. And he knew that he'd already been there a long time. There was no conversation There was no, I've been here a long time. There was no sign. Been here 15 years, bought the t-shirt. Nothing. Jesus saw and Jesus knew. I love that. Because it's just this beautiful moment, this beautiful moment of tenderness. Uh, Before he even speaks to this man, he knows all about him. He knows all about his suffering, all about his dashed hopes. And so let's just pause for a moment in the, in the story that's unfolding here before us. Whatever you've been through, and whatever you're potentially going through right now, or whatever you will go through, just hold on to these precious truths, right? Jesus sees it, and Jesus knows. He sees and he knows. And it's not just like someone who can't really do anything about it. There's, there's a bunch of people in our life who see our suffering, and who know about our suffering, But let's continue and see what Jesus does about him seeing and knowing, right? Jesus is able to do something beautiful. So he comes up to this man here uh, in verse 6. He sees, he understands, he knows this man's story. And he says to him, do you want to be made well? Like, what a question, right? (laughs) No, thanks. (laughs) Do you want to be made well? Um, And of course, the man doesn't have a clue what's about to happen here. And uh, he's looking to the things, uh, he's looking to the superstition. There was a a superstition uh, here that was believed uh, that the first person in the water would become healed. 
Now, once again, the Bible doesn't actually tell us that this was a true superstition. The Bible doesn't condone this situation. It just records it, right? Sometimes the Bible doesn't sanction something. It just reports something. So not everything in the Bible is what we should do, right? It's just saying this is what happened. This is what some people believed. And so there's this superstition. uh, And uh, they would would all try to run down into the water and, and be healed. So Jesus says, do you want to be healed? The man basically says, of course, but how? That's what he's saying here. Of course I want to be healed, but how? I never get there first. I'm never the first in the the water. And every time I try to get down there, there's someone in there before me, and I can't can't get in. So let's pause and look back here. Let's scroll back up. There's a a little stopwatch here. Look at all the references to time. They're appearing in this passage, right? Verse 5, the man's been sick for 38 years. Verse 6, the man's been waiting there at the pool of Bethesda for this miraculous healing experience for a long time. In verse 7, it says that he has to wait for the stirring of the water. So there's patient waiting for the stirring of the water. In verse 7, again, he's never there first. So all this time stuff keeps coming up in this little section, right? And what does Jesus respond? Verse 8, rise, take up your bed and walk. Verse 9, and immediately, immediately. There's another time reference. And what this is showing us is that Jesus is master over time. 38 years he's waited. All these years he's been waiting to pull up Bethesda, waiting for the water to stir, waiting to be the first in. And Jesus says, get up, walk, take up your bed. And the man immediately responds by doing that. The man was immediately healed. He took up his bed and walked. And he walked. He didn't have to wait for the water. He didn't have to be the first to rush the man in. And after 38 long years, the man was immediately healed. Maybe in the, in the sort of way the man was like, how can I get there first? Would you be willing to carry me down there when the water stirs? Wait, wait for the water to stir and throw me in first? And he's like, no, we're not playing that. Get up. And you're, you're, get up and take up your bed. And he does. So uh, this is the third explicit miracle recorded for us in John's Gospel. Jesus is Lord over quality, turning water into wine, the best wine anyone had ever tasted. Jesus is Lord over distance, 20 miles away, and he heals somebody. And here, Jesus is Lord over time. He doesn't have to wait for anything. He's not waiting around for stuff. Jesus is Lord over time. But here's the thing. It's not just the miracle that's being emphasized in John chapter 5. It's the reaction to the miracle. That's the point of this little section here. How do people react to Jesus? Because he's told us so far that people are only doing this because of the signs, right? And so now we're going to see how the reaction unfolds to what Jesus does. In the first miracle, turning water into wine, how did people respond? It says, all those who saw believed him. Right? Anyone who knew about the miracle in John 2, they believed. In John chapter uh, 4, when the, the man comes and asks for Jesus to heal his son, and he sends him back away again, he, and he goes home, and he says, him and his house believed in the miracle. And at the end of John 2, as Jesus is doing these miracles amongst the common folk, it says, they believed him. So, Jesus says, you won't believe unless you see a sign. Here's the sign. Will they believe like these common folk have been 
believing. Well, now we get on to this next little section, which is the Jews and the invalid. Every time it talks about Jews, mostly in John's Gospel, it's referring not to the Jews as a people, but the Jewish leaders. Okay, It's the leaders that it's referring to. Uh, just keep that in your mind. So the second part of verse 9 says, And that day was the Sabbath. So here we go. Here's the tension moment unfolding for us. It's Saturday as Jesus uh, does this miracle. The Jews therefore said to him who was cured, it's the Sabbath. What are you doing carrying your bed around? And the guy responds with, well, I've been waiting there for years. Not, some guy came and healed me and told me to take up my bed and walk. So I figured I should do that, right? So it takes place on a Sabbath day. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 21 to 22. You don't have to turn there. But it says that the people were to carry no burdens on the Sabbath. Okay? So no burden carrying on the Sabbath day. This man was told by Jesus, God in the flesh, to take up his bed and walk. Uh Uh-oh. Right? You've got God and Jeremiah, don't carry a burden. You've got God here in John 5, take up your bed and walk. And it's the Sabbath day. Lots of ideas about what this is. The Jews, uh, these religious leaders, sees this man carrying his bed, and immediately they rebuke him. And their interpretation of Jeremiah, and obviously lots of other things that they have, uh, his bed was a burden. And so he's breaking the Sabbath. And so they rebuke him, and again the man responds, the one who healed me told me to do it. Now here's the, here's the clincher, right? Here's the, here's the really surprising moment. And it's found... In verse 12. What question do the Jews ask? What's the question? If you look there at verse 12. What's the question? Who told you to take up your bed and walk? What, what should they, what questions should they have been asking? Like, we're talking about asking the bad questions here, right? Who, what questions should they be asking? Who did this? Who worked this miracle? Who saw a man infirm for 38 years and gave him the power to walk? That's the question they should have been asking, right? He's just given them a sign. And the, the, the Old Testament is full of prophecies that when the Messiah comes, he's going to heal the sick. Like the sick are going to be healed. The lame will walk, it says. Well, here's the lame walking. So the question they should have been asking is, who did it? He must be the one we've been waiting for. And the question they instead ask is, who told you to break the Sabbath? Right? Wrong question, guys. It shows where their hearts are. Law keepers. Law. Moralism. And and, and not wondering, not not wonder, not awe, but, but law instead. They didn't ask who the healer was. They asked who the one who told him to break the Sabbath was. They don't want to know the answer to this question for worship, but for judgment. This is nothing about worship. It's judgment here. Because we have a word to say to him. And that word is not, you're worthy. That is, how dare you break the Sabbath? How dare you command, you broke the Sabbath? So, so listen, right? So, what's amazing is they're going to get mad at Jesus later on for breaking the Sabbath too, for healing this guy. So it's, this is not worship. This is not awe. This is not wonder. This is not you're worthy. This is not are you the one we've been waiting for. This is law. Can I tell you something? This, this is in all of us. Right? We are all lawish people. Naturally. 
naturally, you're a law person. Okay? When you do something wrong, when you sin against God, okay? So, so another question that nobody likes to answer. Uh, stop making us put our hands up for this one, Alan. Who, who sinned last week? Right? Okay. Thank you. Okay, we've got notes. Uh, cameras taking videos. Right, so when you sinned and you realized you sinned, what was your recourse? And I'll tell you, for some of us, the recourse, what we ran to was, I'll try to make it up to him. I'll try and do, even as Christians who know the gospel, I'll try to do better. I'll try to fix this. I'll, 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 I'll do this and I'll, I'll read my Bible today. I'll, I'll pray a bit more. I'll, I'll try to be good. And we become law keepers. And you know what the worst thing is? If we're law keepers, you know what we do to other people who sin? You know what we give them? What we give ourselves? Law. Law. We're meant to be people of grace. And these men, these, these people, they've begun to believe through all of their false readings of the Old Testament that God was a God who loved them because of their obedience. God is not a God who loves you for your obedience. Right? John's going to throw something at me. <laughs> That's, God does not love you because you're obedient. If he loves you because you're obedient, he doesn't love any of you. You got it? He doesn't love me because I'm not consistently obedient right he'll love me less he'll he'll not love me more more than he does love me because i'm more disobedient than i am obedient is that just me (laughs) and 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 we become a lawless people like these guys asking the wrong questions of who jesus is and what he's done for us but they're not worshiping for they're not coming to ask this question for worship but for judgment and the man's simple responses here is this i i don't know who he was I don't know, because Jesus had left. He did the miracle and he left. He got out of the way. So we come to the third point, Jesus and the invalid. And again, our lawish hearts are going to read this and we're going to have law all over it. But that, that's not quite what we're seeing here. So, so let's look at verse uh, 14. Uh, the next little section. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple. So the man's run to the temple. Why is he there? Why did he go to the temple? Well, we, we don't know. Is he, is he there praising God? That's sometimes what happens when the miracles take place is they run to the temple to offer sacrifice and praise God for healing. Is he partaking in this feast that he's not able to partake in? That maybe he wasn't able to partake in before because he was unclean, surrounded by sick people? If you're surrounded by sick people, you're not allowed in the temple. All right? So maybe he's not allowed in there. Now he's in there. He's like, I get to be part of this now. I've been brought in. Maybe he's fulfilling a vow to God that he made. That's Old Testament too. We, We don't know. But Jesus comes to him as he's in the temple and he says to him, sin no more lest a worse thing happen to you. Now, we're left a little bit stuck here with these words of Jesus, aren't we? This is, this is a bit troubling. Is this a threat? Are we, like, if this guy sins one more time, is Jesus going to smite him again? It's not just going to be your legs this time, it'll be your arms too if you mess around. Because if that's it, that guy walked out of that temple and about three hours later was invalid again. Because right? he's, he's a sinner, right? So what's going on? Why is Jesus uh, saying this to him? We have, a, we have a couple of options. Option one, right? Not all suffering is because of your sin. Not all of your suffering is because of sin. And I know some people believe that. Maybe not here, but in churches today, it is taught that all of your suffering is because of your sin. Right? You're suffering because of your sin. Find out what the sin is, repent of the sin, and the suffering will leave. That is garbage Christianity. That is not biblical. 
Right? Suffering comes upon us because we live in a broken world. Sometimes it's because of our sin. But sometimes it's just because we live in a broken world. Right? So it's not, oh, once I get right with God, he'll heal me. That's not biblical. So not all suffering is because of the individual sin. That's what's argued in John 10. We're going to get to that, you know, quite a bit from now. But, but they, they look at the blind man. The disciples look at the blind man and say, why is this man blind? Maybe they remember this conversation Jesus had with this guy. Well, is he blind because he sinned? Or because his mom and dad sinned? And he's like, Not, neither. Wrong question. Wrong question. So there are times, however, when it is true that our, that our sin brings upon us suffering. God's chastisement or simply the consequences of sin. It may be that some sin that the man had done 38 years ago had brought this illness upon him. It may be that. And if that is the case, Jesus had mercy on him and healed him. Okay, that's one option. Option two, the man has exercised no saving faith in Jesus. Notice what's missing in this section of John's Gospel, chapter 5. Right? He did a miracle, they believed. He did a miracle, they believed. He did a miracle, they believed. He did a miracle, oh, oh, where does it say the man believed? It doesn't actually say that. He went back into the temple. It doesn't say, and he believed in Jesus. So this might be a moment where the man is saying to him, or where Jesus is coming and saying like, hey, uh, there's more here now, right? It's not just about the healing of the legs, it's the healing of the soul we need to talk about now. He doesn't even know who Jesus is. He doesn't even know his name, right? When the Pharisees come, they're like, who was it healed you? And they're like, he's like, I don't even know. Like, he healed me and he walked away. I didn't even get his name, right? So he doesn't have saving faith. He doesn't know what to believe. He, he's, been, he's been infirm for 38 years. Some guy came up to him and healed him and walked away. He's like, whoa. <laughs> he doesn't know anything else. And so Jesus meets him in the temple and he says, listen, you know, sin no more. And, uh, you know, it doesn't tell us the rest of the conversation, but the man's like, uh, what? Sin no more? Like, uh, me? So Jesus has only healed this man physically. But he perhaps hasn't yet healed him for eternity, okay? Because he hasn't believed yet. And, and friends, like, it's so much more important that we have our souls right with God. It's so much more important that we have our, our spirit is healthy, that we are in a relationship with Jesus, that we know him for eternity, then we have physical healing. And again, there are churches all across this land that are promising you physical healing. And out in the streets, promising you physical healing with zero mention of the actual gospel. Praying over people so that their headaches leave without a reference to the fact that your headache's gone for now, but you're still going to go to hell for eternity if you don't trust in Jesus. Why do we have time for stuff like that? It's the gospel. And Jesus has not shown him that yet. He hasn't revealed himself to this man. So perhaps this is a conversation of like, this is who I am. Trust in me for eternal life as well. He's warning the man that eternal condemnation is worse than 40 years of illness. You catch that? Eternal condemnation is worse than 40 years of illness. So then we get to our, our final section, Jesus and the Jewish leaders. And again, we get to this real clincher uh, moment in verse, we're going to go verse 15 to verse 18. So the man's gone, and he, what, did he, what does he do? He goes and tells the Jews. And the word is also translated, he informed them. And what it suggests is, he's gone and grasped Jesus up. Right? He's tattletailed. He, he, he's been accused of breaking the Sabbath, 
breaking the Sabbath back then, you could be stoned to death for stuff like that. You could die for that. You could be cast out. He's only get brought in again. Like he's been an invalid for 38 years. Now he has an opportunity to be part of the society again. And day one, hour one, he's been busted breaking the Sabbath. He's like, oh man, cast out again. And so he, he doesn't know what to do. And he, who told you to do this? I don't know. I don't know. He meets Jesus and he's like, okay, I'm going to go grass him up. Or as they say in the Northeast, he's going to shop him, right? He's going to shop him in and, and, and grass him up and tie on him and tell them who it was. So, they, so he goes and he tells, it was Jesus of Nazareth who, who healed me. And look what it says, incredible in verse 16. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus or they harassed him. Or they pursued him in, a, in, a, in a, a negative way. And they sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. He's just healed a man. He's just given you the sign you're demanding. right? And you're going to kill him. Because he's not upholding your interpretations of the law. His crime of breaking the Sabbath, uh, according to his crime in brackets is to them uh, worthy of killing him. And Jesus' answer is not going to help <laughs> them feel any better about this. But you see, they, they see the signs, but they don't care because they're all about the law. So verse 17, Jesus responds to this. Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now, and I also have been working. My father works, and I work as well. My father works on the Sabbath, and so I, as his son, I, I feel like I have the right to work on the Sabbath too, is what Jesus is saying. God is continually, according to the Old Testament and the New Testament, upholding and sustaining the universe, right? The only reason you're sitting here this morning, if you think it's the Christian Sabbath, the only reason you're sitting here this morning is because God is continually working to keep you right here, right? If God stopped speaking into existence right now, you would be gone. You would be dead. Your arms would fall off, your lungs would, I don't know what would happen. He could do anything. But if, if he's, God right now, right now, in glory, right now, is speaking you into existence constantly. Right? That's what's happening. Maybe some of you are like, well, as soon as he stops speaking into existence, we can get out of the sermon. But, he, but hey, you're here because he's speaking us into existence. Constantly sustaining the universe and upholding it, even on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, so do I. So he justifies his work of healing on the Sabbath by reminding the Jewish authorities that they they allow God to work on the Sabbath. They actually allow it. So there's this old um, uh, thing that they've got written down before Jesus' time where they basically write down, and so God has permission to work on the Sabbath. And God's like, thank you. (laughs) Thank you very much for the permission. Not needed, right? And so what he's saying is, hey, if you've given God permission to work on the Sabbath, and I'm his son then I have permission to work on the Sabbath as well. This privilege of working on the Sabbath was peculiar to God and no one was equal to God. And so no one else could have this experience. In claiming the right to work as his father worked, Jesus is claiming to be God. Jesus is essentially saying, I am God in the midst of you. Right? When you hear people who say, where does Jesus ever say that he's God? Well, here's one example. I mean, there's been a few so far, but here's another one. My father works and so do I. If you understand the context of what's happening here. So then we get to verse 18 to finish off this today. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he had broken the Sabbath and because he uh, had said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. So they've watched the miracle. How 
Jesus says you'll only respond in belief if you see the signs. They've demanded signs. Jesus has given them a sign. And how do they respond? Let's try and kill them. That's how they respond. And what the author is trying to force you to do again this morning is ask the question, how will I respond to Jesus? How will I respond to him? By believing in him and his claims, who he is and what he's able to do, or by by refusing to do it, regardless of all the evidence around us that Jesus is. So I ask that to the unbeliever in the room. Will you believe? Will you believe? The signs are all around us. And we've gone through them in many times here before. If you want more, we'll give you them. But will you believe? Or will you be like someone who sees the signs and refuses to believe because you've hardened your heart? But I ask that to you, my Christian brother or sister, including myself as well this morning. Will we believe? Will we believe? And like, well, of course we believe. It's the only way to be Christian. But will we believe him for today? Will we believe him for tomorrow? Will we believe him for the next day? Will we believe that he's all wise, that he's in control, that he knows what he's doing, that he loves us and cares for us, right? Will we believe his promises? Will we believe his commands? Will we believe what he wants us to do? Will we believe the promise of his coming? That's, what, that's all that matters here. It's not about law and trying to do something to work our way up to him. Will we believe in what Jesus has said, what Jesus said he'll do, what Jesus says he is? Will we believe? I guarantee it. I guarantee it. If you take him at his word today, it'll change how you live your life. It'll change everything. And if you wake up tomorrow and decide to take him at his word, it'll change your life. It'll change your tomorrow. So the choice is yours for today and for tomorrow for the rest. Will I take him at his word? Um, or will I refuse to acknowledge his claims and promises? I, I do that sometimes too. Don't you? Just sort of like be a little bit, I don't really believe. Like, I know I believe, but I, I don't really believe. You know, aren't you like that sometimes? Um, man, if we believed, if we really believed, it would make all the difference in the world. Amen. Thanks, John.